In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Much has happened in the past week. Many wild incidents, strange occurrences, and dangerous near misses. Some of these events could be world-changing. Unfortunately, we're under an NDA about all of these different events and can't tell you about any of them right now. But trust us when we say, wow. You're going to spend the next few months feeling (laughs) sleepless. And with that being said, let's kick off the fear. In our first tale, we join a dead man walking. Frank is a serial killer, being chaperoned to his execution as the crowd jeers and curses. He reflects on the events that led him to this point in life. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, we're reminded that the evil that men do can sometimes only be half the story. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Ellie Hirschman, Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, and Danielle McRae. So let's hang around with Frank and find out what made him this way. He never used to be like this. In fact, he was something of a mama's boy. I'm guilty. Guilty as all hell. Move it! Two warders on the either side. And two more behind for good measure. The grip on my arm unnecessarily tight as they lead me towards the horde. This ain't no confession. Trying to get on your good side or anything like that. But I want you to know, I'm glad they finally caught me. I mean that too. Countless... Good folks suffered in my hands. Men, women, youngins. Not even talking age, some of them. No, couldn't give you a number. Not even thereabouts. Oh, 
Mama, I'm sorry. Through artery eyes and over the sea of heads, I spy the wooden frame in the distance. The rope, now too swaying in the breeze, next to the rounded shoulders of the hangman. My legs buckle, but momentum keeps me going. Feels like my heart is working too hard for its own good. Burn slowly down there, fucker! Please, help me, Mama. Hang, you dumb fuck! At church, every Sunday I was. I don't have too many friends, see? Got bullied an awful lot for being a bit slow and different. Mama's boy. I hope you choke for days! I was just looking for someone to listen. A bit of company other than Mama. And when the voices started, I thought it was him. Waste of skin and bones. We talked for hours, and he listened. And even though it was all inside my head, I didn't feel so lonely anymore. All those children? You're a fucking monster! I let him in. Mama was so pleased. She knows I've been through a rough time and was so happy that I was talking to God. She told all her friends and other folks, too. Fucking devil himself! Over time, the voices began to change, though, saying things about people. Said they talked behind my back, making fun of dumb old Frank and his imaginary friend. Didn't want to believe, but why would God lie? Dumb old Frank started saying things about Mama, too, that she wished she'd let me bleed out that time she found me in the barn with a knife in my wrist. I was an embarrassment, a failed act of blasphemy that she had to carry around with her for all to see. Told me I was a burden to all, and that he was my only friend. Death's too good for you. It got to be as soon as my eyes closed. The voices would start, and they wouldn't let me rest. I didn't know what was real anymore. But I'd already begun to suspect it wasn't the good lord in my ear. Fucking rat filth! They started to drive me insane. It wouldn't let me be in the end. Even after the sun came up, it grinds on you. Takes you to the very edge until you kill for it to stop. Just babies they were. I can still see Mama's face. Her eyes wide and confused as I recited the Lord's Prayer through to her very last breath. So sorry, Mama. Please forgive me. It looks like the entire town is here for blood. 
elbowing for the best spot in front of the gallows, cackling and heckling. <laughs> Vendors having a field day. Line must be 20 deep at least. People handing over hard-earned money for food and drink. Likely not even to find its way into their mouths. Hungry for something else. This lot, less than 40 yards to go. It's in the air. The smell of death, that is. It's as though the crowd is disturbing bad dust. Tainted earth that has seen more than its fair share of evil and misery. The opposite of hallowed ground, if you like. No, mama. Oh, mama. Less than 20 yards now. Between me and the steps, the crowd's getting louder. Restless. Voices stopped when I went down as if they were never there. Made me question myself for sure. But at least I started to feel some way to normal again. Well, as close as one can with so many sins resting on their shoulders. I even started rereading the Bible. I'm a slow reader, but I had time. Prayed for salvation every night and twice yesterday because the voice came back. Something flies by my left ear. But a tomato strikes a direct hit, leaving a sting on my cheek and a string of pale red down the burlap suit they dressed me in. Other things hit on my back, chest, the side of my head. They all hurt, regardless of the level of pain. I hope you feel their agony. He told me. He was coming for me. Nothing from the good Lord, but I have to hope. Something splashes across my neck. Catches one of the warders, too. Uh, don't get paid enough for this. I'm at the steps, looking up at the man that will send me to hell. Mama. I'm so scared. Mama. Get up there. There ain't no coming back. The top of those stairs is the end of my story. There ain't no coming back. I just wanted to set the record straight. I'm not a monster. Yes, I did those bad things. And those children. Those poor children. Too late for tears, you dumb fuck. But he made me do it. He tricked me. Then... He got in, and he spread through my mind like mold. Halfway up, and silence falls across the crowd. Not a drop of saliva in my mouth. Blood pounds in my ears, and my legs feel like lead weights. Three more steps to go. Mama. I bite down hard on my lip. Just like Mama told me to. Don't let them bullies think they're getting to you. Final step. Lord, I beg for mercy. <clears throat> My right leg gives way. 
but the warder is quick and drags me back up. This is it. The end. They drag me towards the noose in full view of the crowd. I can see it in their eyes. Impatiently bloodthirsty, ready to get on with the rest of the day and the knowledge the monster is no more. And why me? And not one of them? Because you're fucking dumb. <laughs> That's why. Nothing but the devil's puppet. There's a mix of emotions in their faces. Fear, hatred, confusion, excitement. Some look like they don't know how to feel. The hangman steps forward. A small piece of black cotton fabric in the chubby fingers of his right hand. I look into his eyes, but he gives me nothing. As if I'm already dead. <laughs> Just a body to be discarded. Just a burden. He stretches out his thick arms and begins pulling the fabric over my head. But just before darkness prevails, I see him in the crowd. I know it's him, Gray Cloak. No face in sight, just a hooded shadow that has come to collect hands around my shoulders, twisting me around. My breathing is fast and erratic. Lord, help me, please. I feel the harshness of the rope against my neck. <laughs> Mama, warmth runs down my leg. The rope tightens. The cold breeze finds its way through the fabric. Never again. Will I feel its touch? Save me, Lord. Save me, Mama. Silence. Only the swell of blood pumping in my ears. Don't let him take me. I swallow hard, feeling coarseness against my Adam's apple. Do it. Do it now. Please, Mama, are you with me? I hear the lever go, and my stomach drops. Eyes screwed shut. I brace for pain. Brace for pain. Nothing. Ahead and to either side, the sound of choking emerges. Pained gargles from above. What? What's going on? I feel the rope, but my words are not strained. The breeze rushes across again. Strangely warm, death taints the smell of food, but even more so now. Mama, what's happening? Blood-curdling rasps slowly begin to quiet. Until finally, silence once again prevails. 
A deafening and never-ending quiet warmth around my wrists and neck. My arms fall to my side, no longer bound, no tightness around my throat. I feel the damp gravel beneath my toes. What is this? A reprieve? My prayers answered. I ripped the fabric from my head, squinting around the wooden beam and into a sky I never thought I'd see again. But something is different, broken, and it takes a while for my brain to catch up. Momentarily, I think I'm in hell. That he snatched me as I fell, but the place looks same as before, bar the floating bodies, all suspended in air. Discolored heads lolloped to one side, some with tongues protruding from pale lips. It's as though someone has picked up each of them by their necks, squeezed the life out of them and left them there, like ghosts. Someone, a soft thud to my right, snaps my head around. Another to the left, one by one, they begin falling to the ground. Lifeless sacks of bone that were heckling only minutes ago. Sunlight finds its way to my face again as the bodies continue to fall around me. Heavy rain. Guess this ground got more than its fair share of death today. I respect the dead, just as Mama taught me. Weaving my way through the bodies, I take nothing from them. The vendor's cart is different, and I don't feel bad for raiding the stuffed metal tin. Grab some food for the journey, too. I ain't ever had this much money in my pocket at one time. Should see me through for a while. Don't know where I'm headed yet, but I know he'll be with me. And it's only a matter of time before the voices begin. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Mama. Childhood-sibling rivalry can seem so consuming at the time, especially when you're the younger child and your older sibling seems so much better, stronger, smarter, even cooler than you. It can be a real drag. And in this tale, shared with us by author Rob Costello, we meet a young man whose envy towards his older brother may not be undeserved. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, and Jeff Clement. So let's not pretend that things are just peachy. There's obviously some underlying issue between these two boys. One of them is you, and I am the other one.
two brothers ran through the woods. One me, one you. Two brothers ran, inhaling August air so thick it clung to our summer bronzed limbs like a second skin. Our shouts and laughter the only sounds that echoed off the mute hearts of the trees that surrounded us. Two brothers ran, dodging limbs and branches, leaping the swollen roots of hemlock and century oak, scurrying through the brush and darkening green like frenzied rabbits, like kill-hungry hounds. I turned to see you pound your slim bare chest as if you were the master of our jungle. You inhaled the moss-rich air and shouted again. You were a ripe, blonde-headed boy, built from juts and angles. Eyes the green of pond water. Strong and tall for your age, yet so frail and vulnerable when matched against the towering world that surrounded us. Even so, you were more than a match for me. Kill the pig! Cut his throat! Kill the pig! Bash him in! Time out. I skidded to a halt and whirled around to glare at you. I'm not Piggy. I'm not. The red raw sky gaped like an open wound through the trees as I pitched forward, sneakers towing the loam. Hands on knees, gasping and cursing you under my breath. In the distance, a dog bayed in sympathy with my indignation. I said I wouldn't be Piggy. I meant it. Unheeding, you leapt buck-like over the brush, your arms outstretched to tag me out. I got you! You collapsed against the shining white bark of a birch, sliding down into a ball of (laughs) breathless titters at my feet. But I called time out! I struggled to frame the injustice of it all. I told you I wouldn't be piggy. It's not fair. I had the good sense to turn away to hide my frustrated tears. We're not playing this stupid game anymore. I won't play it. You fixed me in a hard glare and pulled yourself to your feet. I braced for the shove that would lead to a scuffle that would end with me toppled onto the ground. But no shove came. Instead, you merely snorted at me. I was not even worth your trouble, although I still watched you warily, waiting. Your face was flush with exertion, your chest surging from your glorious run through the woods. You produced a handkerchief from the pocket of your cutoffs. You spit on a cleanish corner and daubed at a red, wet gash that snaked across your shoulder. Then you flashed me a private smirk and said, almost to yourself, That's okay. Piggy was a sore loser, too. I called time out, you cheater! I hate you! But before I could finish, you were on top of me, all rapid-fire arms and legs. You pushed me to the ground, your ropey thighs pinioning my legs, my arms twisted behind my back, my face shoved into the dirt. Ah, <laughs> Take your punishment like a man, Piggy! <laughs> You leveraged your greater weight to keep me immobile. 
Although I struggled, you had me trapped. I was the younger one, the weaker one. The one who still cried at night, missing Mama. The one who wet the bed. I was at your mercy as you pinned my wrists with one hand and jammed the other down the back of my cutoffs. Gathering a handful of damp elastic that you yanked upward with all your might. I hollered, first with shock, then with rage. But then the taut fabric of my underpants cut into my soft, unripened boy parts, and I began to whimper. Without mercy, you pulled harder, harder, until with a tear so violent I thought an organ had burst inside me. The cotton gave way, rending along the seam. Then you leapt to your feet, laughing at me. I flipped onto my back and sat up, tears streaming down my dusty cheeks. The baying dog in the distance let out a low, sustained howl, as if scenting our scuffle like the feeder of a cockfight. You leaned forward and offered me a hand up, but I pushed it away. You... you tricked me. You're not Piggy. You smiled. But you still lost. Fuck you and your pity. That's what I would have said if I'd had those words within me back then. But since I didn't, I snorted back my tears and snot, and with all the bile I could muster, I hawked a loogie into your face. You didn't even flinch. Just snagged the handkerchief from where you dropped it and wiped my spittle from your chin. Ugh. That was a wormy thing to do. Be a man if you don't want to be a pig. Then you strode past me, toward the clearing, as if stepping over a pile of dog crap. My rage deflated and I scrambled to my feet. The flapping elastic of my favorite Justice League underoos overhung the waist of my cutoffs like the bottom lip of an orangutan. I yanked fitfully at my backside, trying without success to dislodge my violated underpants from all the uncomfortable corners they dug themselves into. But after several moments of no luck, I kicked out of the cutoffs, shimmied out of the ruined briefs, and hurled them into the low-hanging branches. Then I slipped back into my shorts and stumbled after you. By now, the pinks and reds had drained from the evening sky, replaced by the cooler blush of purple-violet flecked with starlight. You stood a few paces ahead in an open pasture of swaying sweetgrass. Your arms outstretched, the tallest of the feathery tips brushing the palms of your hands. Feeling better? You did not turn to look at me. Though I took my place behind you, I didn't respond. I couldn't bring myself to apologize. I think the old man's gone. You gestured to the darkened farmhouse, hunched and brooding on the far side of the pasture. Then you pointed to the chain-link kennel backed up against the side of the house. Corporal's in the pen. Inside it, I could just make out the black shape of the patrolling Rottweiler. What if he gets out? It was as if the dog's ears pricked at being discussed, because he let out another low howl. 
be stupid. If he could get out, do you think we'd be standing here now? Don't call me stupid. I gave you a half-hearted shove. Stop it. We don't have time. You turned to look at me, but all I could see was your shadow in the gloaming. The old man's always back by ten at the latest, but he could show up any minute. The orchard's on the far side of the house, and we still have to get the baskets off the porch. You jerked your head towards the low-slung shoulders of Connecticut Hill on the horizon. Gramps said the moon rises early tonight. We should meet back here when it does. Whoever has the most peaches wins. Got it? Yeah. Yeah, I got it, boss. This was your plan, and like all of your plans, I didn't get any say in its execution. What was worse, I knew as sure as the sun would rise that your basket would close out the night holding three times as many peaches as mine. There wouldn't be a competition. That was how it always worked between us. While I lazed away the summer buried in some book, you were off scoping out Old Man Hazard's orchard, lurking among the trees, observing his routines, fixating on the prize with such a tangible fervor that by the time you came home for dinner, I could practically smell the sweet tang of peaches already on your breath. Looking back, it was a pointless game. Peaches? We had our own stupid peach tree in the backyard, and Grandma would have bought us bushels more if we'd asked. But what did any of that matter to you? You were poised for victory, and that's all that ever mattered. Winning. Beating me. By then, you'd already begun to walk toward the house. After a moment's hesitation, I followed. The pasture was broader than a football field, the ground soft and wet. It sucked at the soles of my sneakers, slowing me down. Though you managed to glide effortlessly through the grass to quickly pull ahead of me. You'd just begun to whistle an old Civil War tune from a black and white movie we'd watched with Gramps on TV. When you were suddenly drowned out by an ungodly rush coming from the woods behind me. I spun around to see the great dark cloud emerge from the treetops. A susurration of wings followed by squeals and clicks as the swarm of bats descended upon the ripe mosquito fields of Old Man Hazard's lower acreage. And then, it was upon you. Dozens of them, spiraling in at you, whirling and cheeping until you nearly vanished within the funneling vortex of fluttering black bodies. I dropped to my knees and covered my ears against the clamor. But you, you didn't even flinch. Instead, as I looked on in horror, you lifted your arms above your head and with a kind of manic glee began to wiggle your fingertips at the heart of the swarm, almost as if to tickle the creature's underbellies. Stop it! Stop! And then, it was over. Corporal let out a mournful howl as the bats veered off, resuming their course to dinner. And then you were looming above me, a shadowy hand outstretched. They're gone. That was cool. 
But I didn't move. I didn't speak. What could I say? It wasn't as if I were surprised. I knew well your uncanny gift. Grandpa called it your Doolittle. Your ability to commune with the creatures of the wild. Sense their minds. Share their thoughts. Feel their feelings. Though our cows and chickens and goats all ignored you, I'd personally witnessed you run with the whitetail foals as if you were among them. I'd watched you shimmy with the squirrels up the throat of a copper beech taller than the church steeple. I'd seen ravens eat berries out of the palm of your hand, observed a mama lynx curl up in your lap with her newborn kittens, and even gawped dumbfounded while you wrestled with a wild boar as if you were the best of friends. And after each of these episodes, and countless others like them, I'd always felt squeezed inside by the same dread envy that you were different, special, that I could never be like you, that I would never be you. One of a kind, Gramps would boast as he tussled your golden hair. But each time he did so, I felt something stir in a small, black chamber of my heart. I clambered to my feet, refusing your hand. Are you ready? Sure. But the only thing I was ready to do was to turn around and run home. I wanted to concede defeat, get it over with quickly and painlessly. I wanted to slink back to the book I'd been reading, where at least I might lose myself for an hour or an evening, imagining that I could somehow be special too. But there was no way I could turn back now. Are you sure you want to go through with this? Almost as if you could do little me. My hesitation. I felt you peer at me through the darkness, judging me the way Gramps eyed the evening sky, gauging the color of the clouds for bad weather on the rise. It'll be okay. Why don't you just wait here for me? Fuck your pity. If only I'd had those words back then. No need to console poor Piggy, but instead I muttered, Let's just go, and bolted for the house before you could say another word. As I ran, the pasture flickered to life around me. Masses of fireflies winked on the air like stardust. The grass swatted my bare skin as the hulking silhouette of the farmhouse loomed ahead, blotting out a larger and larger slice of sky. Yet before I'd reached the back porch, my footfalls provoked Corporal into a snarling rage. The chain link clattered tenuously as the dog clawed at its frail enclosure. I shuddered, slowed, and then stopped, all my nerve dribbling into the dirt at my feet. Just ignore him. He can't get out. Then you jogged around me. I watched, paralyzed, as your shape dashed through the final paces of grass and scuttled up the creaking steps of the back porch. I tried to will myself to follow you, but it was as if my feet had taken root. 
corporal howled at our intrusion upon his turf, the chain link groaning and rattling as he hurled himself madly against it. But nothing happened. Even so, when you called my name from the porch, I couldn't summon the breath to respond. I was frozen in place by the absolute certainty that I could not take another step. That is, until you shouted, Come on, Piggy! All at once, my toes curled inside my sneakers, uprooting me. I somehow lifted one foot after the other until I was there, tottering at the top of the porch steps behind you. I said nothing about the insult, too wary to open my mouth so near to the angry dog. Instead, I scanned the porch. It was dimly lit by a lamp somewhere within the house shining through an open window. Corporal's kennel sat not fifteen feet to the left, wedged between the foundation and the end of the porch. I couldn't see the dog inside it, but I could hear him, seething at this inexcusable invasion of his master's domain. I could smell him, too. Smell the fetid stink of his unwashed fur and the musk of freshly upturned soil. He's trying to dig out. Relax! You were barely audible over the dog's outbursts as you leisurely rifled through a heap of basket-shaped objects piled beside an old recliner. Once I watched a fox take a nap across from that kennel. He never got out, and he was way more worked up than now. You turned to me, handing over a small wicker basket. It was the kind of dainty thing Grandma might have used to pick blueberries. But I took it anyway, too uneasy to protest. Hazard knew what he was doing when he built that pen. There's no way for him to get out unless that old man wants him to. See that? You gestured at the shape of what appeared to be an overturned question mark dangling in midair above the arm of the recliner. It took my brain a moment to resolve it into what it actually was. The curved brass handle of an old cane affixed to a length of rope that hung from the eaves of the porch. He's got the rope strung to the gate latch and he's got the gate spring loaded. One pull on that and it's all over. If the old bastard had been home that day, that fox wouldn't have stood a chance. You strode across the porch and leaned over the railing beside Corporal's pen. You're not so tough in there now, are you? Corporal leapt and snarled, trying to clamber up the side of the pen. But it was no use. The fence was too high. Oh, look at the little puppy. What's the little puppy gonna do? Stop it! I knew you hated that dog. You hated and feared all the creatures you couldn't reach. The domesticated ones, the ones too complacent or trained or skittish to do little with you. Like the colt that threw Mama. But your hate turned you ugly, cruel. Corporal was already too riled up. I was afraid he might hurt himself trying to get out. He's just a stupid dog. You don't need to be such a bully. I'm a bully? You whirled on me. You haven't seen him kill anything yet. You let that sink in for a moment before returning to the pile of baskets. I didn't know what else to do, so I just stood there watching as you rummaged through the remaining baskets until you'd found the one you wanted. 
It was at least three times larger than the one you'd handed to me, with a deep belly of woven rushes and a wooden handle as thick as my wrist. I felt the burn rise to my cheeks. I grabbed for it. I'll take one like that. Nah, that's okay. You hoisted it out of my reach. That one's a better fit. But, come on. You slipped past me and skipped down the steps. There's no time to argue. Then you disappeared around the corner of the house. But I didn't follow. Instead, I cursed the worst word I knew how to curse. Shithead! And hurled the little grandma basket down the length of the porch, where it bounced off the top of the railing and pitched itself into Corporal's kennel. The dog went silent for a moment, startled by the crash, until, with a sudden rush of muscle and fury, he pounced upon the invader. I listened with cold satisfaction to the sound of wood and wicker being torn to shreds. Then I stepped over to the scattered heap of baskets. You'd been sloppy about making your selections. What had been a stack of baskets neatly nestled one into the other was now a jumble. I got down on my knees and began to rummage through them, although soon enough I realized there were none as tiny as the one you'd given to me. The runt of the litter. Shithead. My blood pounded in my ears. I sucked down a spiteful breath and continued searching for a basket to match the one you'd taken for yourself. But there weren't any others that size, and I was finally forced to settle for one almost as large. Unlike your basket, this one was rectangular and constructed from thin strips of interwoven wood. It had two rusty handles bolted to its sides and reeked of mildew. It was also ridiculously heavy. I heaved it into my arms and quickly realized that it would be impossible for me to carry such a bulky thing through the orchard, especially once it was filled with a bounty of ripe peaches. Reluctantly, I set it back down and began to search for a more manageable basket. But they were all the same, too large or heavy or awkwardly configured for my small hands and skinny body to carry especially when bearing a full load of swollen fruit. My heart sank. You'd chosen the right one for me all along. My arms and legs turned to pillows. I was stuffed with feathers. What was the point? What was the point? I stumbled backwards and fell into Old Man Hazard's recliner. The stench of dust and sweat wafted up from the dirty fabric, but I barely noticed. Corporal's barking had become an enervating drone, like the angry whir of an overheating engine. I rested my head against the cushion and shut my eyes. I drifted back and back, falling further into the gloom behind my eyelids until my mind slipped free of my body. Then I could sense it again that ugly black thing taking shape within me. It sniffed at the corners, nosing for its way out. It had been penned up inside me too long, watching, waiting. 
my own strange and terrible companion. You weren't so special, it whispered coldly to me. You weren't one of a kind. After all, we were brothers, you and I. While you let your Doolittle roam wild and free, making you only seem stronger, better, after Mama died, I'd yoked mine to the fear and guilt of my terrible secret. A jumpy colt that heeded me in a childish fit of temper at not being allowed to ride him. Mama was dead because of me because of what I could do, and ever since then I'd kept my own deadly do-little caged and seething, mostly docile, yet never fully tamed. But no more. No more. Corporal's barking transformed into a kind of terrible machine gun that fired in rhythm with my heartbeat. Thump. Thump. Thump as if the trigger inside me were being pulled tighter and tighter. Thump, 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 until at last in that simple, perfect communion that I've come to dread and cherish in all the years since, his rage became my rage, and my rage his. Thump, thump, thump. I reached up and yanked the brass question mark. An ecstatic whoosh flooded into me. Corporal and I leapt as one to freedom. And were gone. And then the silence. And then the scream. I jerked upright, my bond with the dog broken, the bite of cold metal still burning my palm. The sound came again, no mistaking it now. Your voice, shrill and penetrating and so pitiful, it nearly swamped me in a swell of horror. I hurled myself to my feet and ran. You kept howling my name over and over, but at first I couldn't see you. I couldn't see Corporal either. Couldn't see anything really, nor hear anything save the terrible sound of your shrieking louder, louder, louder. I stumbled around the corner of the house and bolted across the driveway, nearly taking a header as I tripped over an old iron spade Hazard had left lying in the grass. With a man-sized surge of adrenaline, I hauled its dead weight into my arms. But though I could barely keep from toppling over with that heavy thing clutched to my chest as I ran, I finally saw the orchard looming ahead. A sorry patch of misshapen trees that quivered in a spill of sickly light from the orange moon cresting Connecticut Hill. There you were, kneeling on the ground, a struggling mass of boy and dog wrangling for dear life at the feet of those twisted trees. 
Swarms of crows and starlings dived and pecked wildly at Corporal's body, but it was no use. The Rottweiler had you by the forearm. His canines sunk fast into the meat of you. The basket lay useless by your side as you bellowed for my help, beating the animal over the head with your free fist. But he dug so deeply into your flesh, I thought he'd rip your arm clean off before he let go of you. His grudge was that unquenchable. My grudge. That's when I knew he'd never give you up. I knew it. And in the cruel clarity of that moment, as I reckoned with my childish impotence at how to stop what I'd unleashed, I also knew I'd have to kill him if I wanted to save you. Thus, with all the strength I could muster, I heaved that rusty spade over my head and brought it down with a sickening thud against Corporal's writhing back. The birds scattered. The recoil was stunning. Pain jolted through my body. I lost my grip and the spade tumbled to the ground. Corporal released your arm and staggered backwards. But before I could reach down to pull you to your feet, he'd shaken off my blow and launched himself back at you. In an instant of absolute silence, he had you by the throat. You collapsed back into the grass and went limp. My lungs exploded in a wail. I threw myself on top of him, dug my fingers into his eyes. But though he whimpered and whined, he would not release you. I scrambled back to my feet and dove for the spade. I hoisted it above my head and brought the edge of the blade down sharply against the base of Corporal's skull. Vertebrae crackled like kindling. Jets of blood spurted from a gash in his fur. He twitched in a violent fit, and then his body deflated against yours. His teeth still embedded in your neck. I threw myself onto the two of you, driving my fingers into Corporal's slippery mouth until I pried apart his jaws and pushed him off of you. You began to convulse then the air rich with the tang of your blood, but at least you were still breathing. The shallow rise of your chest matched by a moist sucking that escaped the terrible gore in your throat. I got behind you and jimmied my fingers into your armpits to try to lift you, but you were just too heavy. Next, I tried to stop the bleeding with my small hands, but it was no use and so I grabbed you by the ankles instead and managed to drag you back toward the house to a phone, an adult. Still, it never occurred to me to drop you and run for help. It never crossed my mind that that was maybe the only way to save your life. Christ, I was just a boy covered in my brother's blood. All I knew was that I couldn't leave you. Not after what had happened. Not after what I'd done. So I didn't leave you. Not as I watched your face drain of color in the rising moonlight. 
Not as the woods erupted in a mournful chorus of yowls and caws and screeches. Not as your skin turned cold, then waxy, and the blood stopped pumping from your throat. Not once during those minutes that turned to hours and then lifetimes did I move from your side. Not until I finally heard the approaching thrum of Hazard's pickup. Hang on. I whispered futilely into your ear. Hang on. Only then did I abandon your ashen corpse to run for the sound of that truck. But before that moment, back before the night that became superimposed on everything that's happened since, before the rages, the therapy, the self-loathing, before my nightmares of you and Mama and the others made sleep all but impossible, before the blood, oh, the blood, and all these deaths, the terrible price for what I've become without you. Back before any of that, as we huddled together beneath the moonlight, you and I, back with the fingers of darkness poised to close around us forever. Somewhere in those final moments we spent together, I came to understand one excruciating truth. I was the only one now. And deep down, dear brother, I was glad of it. Digging underground is always a risky prospect, even when you're just helping out with a charitable project to aid the local church. All the goodwill in the world won't help when that earth comes crashing down on you. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, by some miracle there are at least some survivors. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, Mick Wingert, and Mike Delgadio. So welcome back the men from underground. It's surely just your imagination when they seem a little different, a little wrong. After all, they did manage to escape the well. There's something different about Daddy's eyes. For one, he doesn't look at me as a man should. He looks past me, around my ears, over my head. Like he's waiting for something to sneak up behind me. He hardly blinks anymore either. He's all wide-eyed like a tomcat chasing a big old fat rat. It happened a couple of months back. Daddy went with a group of men to help dig a well for the church. The water they pulled up wasn't good. Smell funny. Looked like those pockets of pond water that linger after the rest of the pond dries up. The ones the fish go to die in. So, they kept digging. 
I stayed back with Mama and Little Joe. We called him Little Joe because Daddy was Big Joe. Don't know why they skipped over me to name my little brother after Daddy, but I wasn't sore about it. He loved us all the same. I tended the land while Daddy walked the three or four miles to church each morning, usually whistling before even the crow woke up. He and the others did the work free of charge, said they'd be paid in full in the hereafter. Daddy didn't come back on the third evening. Mama felt it in her gut and she stopped looking out over the window. Instead, she looked at Daddy's chair, squinting in the fading light, as if she could conjure him if she willed it hard enough. Something's happened, Robert. It was early autumn and the air was just cooling off after a long, hot summer. Mama was shivering as if it was New Year's Day, though. She looked small with the little shawl around her shoulders, as if she was practicing at being an old woman. I'll ride Benny down to the church. She shook her head, shadows settling into every line on her face. She could have been 80 years old then. It'll have to wait until morning. Whatever's happened is already done. Just stay here with me and little Joe for the night. I was all at 12 years old but felt a man's burden on my shoulders. I will, Mama. It'll be okay in the morning. Except it wasn't. I chewed on a biscuit as I rode just after dawn. Arthur the rooster sending me off with that strange crow of his, like his head was half underwater. My tongue felt like it dried up right inside my mouth, so I tossed the biscuit into the field. I rode Benny hard, and I didn't take but a couple of minutes to get to the church. I knew by the crowd Mama's feeling was right. It always was. There was a mountain of dirt, shovels, and ropes. Men dabbing sweat on their brows despite the chill, yelling words right next to the church that should have been whispered. The pastor sat down on the tree stump with his head in his hands. Is Daddy okay? He looked up at me, and I could tell from the bruised pouches beneath his eyes he hadn't slept that night. Robert, it's good to see you. I let my question hang in the frosted air between us. He is... I... I hope so. The ground caved in while they were digging, and there's six down there. We don't know how far they fell. The uh, ground angles away from the lights, but... We can hear at least four. There just wasn't much we could do in the dark. But they're about to lower the ropes again. I hope your father's okay, son. He's a good man. I joined the men who stood over the ragged hole in the earth, looking for a way to help. By then, the rolls were established, so I just stood back as they began to hoist. One by one, the men came up, slick with mud and eyes shining like the full moon. I couldn't tell one man from another until they spoke. None of the first three were daddy. The few bites of biscuit in my belly turned sour, and I approached the edge of the opening, but was pushed back. Whoa, 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 it ain't stable. You could fall right in. They were worried the ground would open up and swallow us all, but there was still one voice answering when they called. I couldn't tell if it was daddy, but I had to hope. I grabbed a bit of rope and helped to pull. It was all I could do, and 
probably didn't matter in the end. I had a man's burden, but not a man's strength. He broke the surface and flopped on the grass like a fish. Daddy? The man was hunched over with his hands on his knees. He vomited, and it was as black as tar. His spine curled and straightened as more of the black came out of him. I imagined him in the dark all night, swallowing mud, choking on it. Daddy? I looked up for something familiar about this slick, wet shadow. He sat up, resting his hands on his thighs. He blinked a few times, and then found my face. Oh, Robert. My God. Oh, God. Daddy was laid up for a few days. He caught an awful sickness, but it was a miracle he survived at all. Two other men were not so lucky, and no one could think of a way to retrieve him from the hole. They just kept dropping the rope in, and it kept coming back up without a passenger. I took over his obligations while he recovered. He didn't talk much in that time. The third night after the miracle, I sat beside him and listened to his breaths, which had a terrible wet rattle. I placed my hand atop his, and he roused some. For a time, he only stared at the ceiling, blinking and coughing weakly. Daddy? He took three breaths before he answered. Yes, son. What happened to you? What happened down there? I thought he might have fallen asleep. His eyes were shut and his breathing settled into a pattern. I saw... It was... There's something in the dark. Something in the dark with us. What do you mean, Daddy? His eyes searched the corner of the room as if the answer was hidden in the shadows there. Something in the dark. It whispered in my ears. It said awful things, son. I don't know what to make of him. His voice was thin, as if he couldn't hold enough breath in his lungs. There was cavern. It was dark. We, we couldn't see, but we could hear it spe- speaking all, all through the night. We could, <coughs> we could hear his voice echoing in the cavern. What did it say? I watched his chest rise and fall and waited for a response that did not come. I pulled the blanket to his chin and blew out the candle. What a nightmare. Trapped in the cold mud, blind and drowning. Your friends dying beside you. Last words choked with muck. I love you, Daddy. I closed the door behind me. Mama sat in his chair feeling the fabric like she sometimes did his beard stubble. How is he? Sleeping, thank God. Was starting to ramble about a cavern. Mama nodded and watched embers die in the fireplace. It's been two weeks now. Summer's blue skies are gone and it's always gray. 
There's work to be done, and I've done my best. But I am not a man yet. My hands are blistered. My back hurts. I had to slaughter a hog the other day, and... Well, it took longer than it did when I was the helper. Couldn't touch the meat after. Daddy is... different. His cough is improved, but he rarely leaves the bed during the day. I encounter him at the fringes of the night, in early morning and late in the evening. He is not shaved or bathed. There's an awful stench about him, like the bad water in the well. I can hear him at night, pacing back and forth across the porch outside. It disturbs my sleep, and I wake every morning feeling as if I slept not at all. I stare at the moonlight on the floor, stretched out into a long rectangle. Little Joe was snoring in his bed. He sleeps through everything. He's off at school most of the day, so he hasn't noticed Daddy is different. My eyes ache. I feel like I could sleep until Christmas. But there is work to be done. I sneak out of the room, but there's no real sneaking in the house. The floorboards squeal and groan as I pass through the kitchen. I find Daddy on the porch. The lamp beside him burns faintly, barely more than a firefly's glow. Daddy, what are you doing out here? It comes out as an accusation. He lowers the book and looks up, but I can't see his face. I imagine he can't see me well either. There are no sounds to be heard beyond the push and pull of our breaths. The crickets are slumbering. Our animals are at rest in the fields. The whole world waits for winter, which threatens every day. Looking for answers. My heart steadies at the confidence in his voice, but that peace quickly gives way to my anger. If he is well, then why does he leave me to tend to the animals and the fields? To do a man's work when I have only this boy's body. Answers? To what? What I did. Uh, what, what we heard in the dark. He flips another page, finds nothing of interest there, and turns to the next. I open the door to the house and say over my shoulder, Maybe the answers are in the field, where you belong. I have never said anything so cruel to my father. But before that night, I never hated him. I find the sound of little Joe's snores comforting and I sleep well and deeply. I wake and can tell by the light in the room I have overslept. It is too bright and I pull on my boots, feet still throbbing from yesterday's work. Good morning, Mama. She tends a red-hot skillet in the kitchen, sweat on her forehead like the grease popping off the iron, pork fat. My stomach flips. Good morning, Robert. I hope you don't mind. I let you sleep in. You looked awful worn yesterday. Thank you, Mama. She is lighting the stove, but the room is already filled with the odor of burning. I follow the scent to the living room. There are a few coals glowing red in the fireplace. I stir them with the poker and find the book Daddy was reading the night before. 
It is charred along the edges, but mostly intact. It is his Bible. Daddy is in a poor mood today. I suppose I am to blame as he responded to my challenge by resuming his duties. He speaks to no one but makes a terrible noise whenever he goes, stomping and mumbling under his breath. Some of those words I heard out by the church the week before. I come upon Mama watching him through the kitchen window. She has a hand to her cheek and this faraway look in her eyes. Mama, is Daddy okay? She flinches slightly at the sound of my voice and turns toward me, smiling. I hope so, Robert. I can't imagine what it was like for him down there. I do wish he would talk about it, though. Did he tell you about the voice he heard? She nods just a bit and begins to examine her hands. He'll come around, won't he? I want to ask her the same thing. I wake, and it is dark in the room, the moon hidden behind the gray clouds that seem to never move. I don't know why I am awake, but I know it is not of my own accord. I sit up in bed and tilt my head. Little Joe is snoring like always, but there is another sound mixed in with it. It's whispering. My eyes adjust to the darkness, and a few shapes assert themselves. There is a faint glow of white pajamas beside little Joe's bed. It's Daddy. I can make out the basic shape of him, but do not know what he is doing. I want to call to him, but hold back a moment. He is whispering in little Joe's ear. I cannot understand one word, but I can sense the shape of them. The harshness in each letter. What is he whispering? And why? Time passes and it seems like a long time. I am afraid of drawing his attention to me. But I also fear for little Joe. Daddy stands and hovers over my brother for a moment. Then pivots and makes for the door. I slide out from my blanket and match his steps as he walks ensuring the sound of his footfalls masks my own. He stands next to his chair, arms slack by his side. His head sways from side to side as if he's searching for something on the ground. What is he thinking? My breath passes slowly between my lips. I am quiet as a garden snake because I do not want him to hear me. I do not want him to whisper in my ear. He lifts his head and steps forward. His hands grasp the arms of the wooden crucifix mounted to the chimney. He lifts it free and takes three quick steps to the front door, opens it, and steps out into the night. Mama has a visitor this morning, a sister of one of the men that was in the hole with Daddy. He hasn't come back since he left with the crucifix. I catch bits and pieces of the conversation. Her voice is shaky, like she's on horseback, and she keeps putting her face right into Mama's chest. Pardon me, 
I say as I walk to the front door. Dead. Evil. Those are the two words she said. I do not know what to make of it. Little Joe is still in his bed. He woke all cold and clammy, his blanket soaked with sweat as if he was burning through a fever all night. I recall Daddy standing over him like a specter, hissing into his ear. I wonder if the sickness is connected, but I don't dwell on the thought. It makes my stomach turn. There's still dew on the grass. The sun hides behind the gray quilt of clouds. It is forever twilight anymore. Daddy's trail is easy to find. He walked to the road, and so I walked to the road as well. That churning feeling in my gut has not abated. If anything, it feels worse. It feels like the rock tumbler at school. I haven't gone to school since Daddy's accident, and I don't think about it much. Most boys don't finish school around here. I wanted to. I like learning about science and far-off places. But it is not my fate. It is easy to feel alone, as if you're the only person in the world. Fields go on forever. You can't really tell where the grass and the sky meet. It's just a haze in the distance somewhere. The red Texas dirt crunches beneath my boots. It's a good sound, and I like it. But I soon realize I am no longer following Daddy's prints. I'm just walking, and Mama needs me. Little Joe is finally asleep. I can hear him breathing like there's a wet rag in his lungs. Tomorrow I am to go to town to pick up some medicine. Mama's home remedies have not helped his condition as yet. Mama reaches across the table to lay her hand atop mine. She smiles at me, but she is not happy. No expression of her face can match her feelings at the moment. We're talking about a visitor, and the room smells faintly of her perfume. Disappeared. Like Daddy did? She nods. Started acting strange, just like your daddy. She said Kenneth wasn't eating much, kept odd hours. Was awake through the night, mostly. He stopped talking to them, at least. Seemed like he was always talking when he was in a room alone. Mary took to visit him every day to check on Elva and the kids. I look to the door and wonder if I should lock it. And then she takes a breath that sends a shudder through her body. Gone for a couple of days. Then he tried to take his own head off in the barn. Got about halfway through and maybe thought better of it. Walked into the house. Elva and kids right there eating dinner with a saw stuck in his neck. (sighs) Kenneth was dead by the time Mary got there. But it wasn't quick. And he tried to talk the whole time. Blood spilling on the floorboards. Mouth opening and closing like a fish on land. That's... Awful, I know. Yes, I'm scared about Daddy. But I'm scared for us, too. I think we should pay a visit to your aunt in Oklahoma. Maybe he just needs time. I can get the horses ready. We can go tomorrow morning. She looks to the window above the basin, at the rain collected in thin streams. It is a cold rain, 
One that reminds me I broke my leg falling off a horse a few years back. No, not with little Joe sick like he is. Give him a day or two of rest. Then we'll see. Okay, Mama. Robert? Yes, Mama? There's just one more thing. I probably shouldn't tell you. I shouldn't treat you like a man yet. You do a fine job in your daddy's stead. But you are a boy. I wait for her to decide. Mary said when she got there, his eyes were still open. Said he looked scared. Terrified. Something he saw, or thought he saw, scared him more than the blade in his neck. My body is ragged, but I do not pass into sleep easily. Little Joe is still making that wet, raspy sound when he breathes. I hope a night's rest will put him on the right path. The room smells of Mama's salves, which calm my nerves some. My dreams are all of Daddy, and they run together. I dream he is in the room, bent over to whisper in my ear. When I open my eyes, the whispering persists, and I see the blackness of his face in the dark. I smell the earthen odor about him, and his rotten breath. Before I can scream, his hand covers my mouth. It is wet and slick. Though my eyes adjust to the darkness, his face grows no lighter. It is then I realize he is covered in mud. I tried to make him see, Robert. I tried. I told him the truth about the darkness, the voices. I told him the truth, Robert. But he didn't listen. He was afraid of me. He did not want to see Robert. He removes his hand from my mouth, but holds up a finger. Then, he finds my hand and turns the palm up. I tried, but he did not see. He couldn't see. He places something in my hand and nods. By touch, I do not recognize it. And so I lean my head over to inspect. The eyes are oily with mud. One is intact while the other is a sack of jelly. He holds up a finger again, so I do not scream, but my heart beats so fast, the whole world shrinks. There are no weapons in this room, just my fists, and those might as well be pixies for all the good they would do. I should have taken a rifle to bed. Daddy beckons me to follow. He leaves and I hear the front door creak open. I jam my feet into my boots and plod after him wearing only my pajamas. Outside, the rain has stopped. The grass glistens when it catches a bit of moonlight here and there. Daddy is already walking down the road. I want to run back inside and grab the rifle, but I'm afraid of disturbing Mama. The mud sucks at my boots as I scurry toward the road. My heart is racing and I realize that I am still holding the eyes. Whose eyes? Daddy didn't say. All of this feels like a nightmare. Like I should sit up in bed at any moment to hear the sound of little Joe's snores. My pajamas do not have pockets, so I hold on to the eyes 
I'd try to keep them secure without squeezing too hard. But some of the slurry runs between my fingers. Daddy walks fast, and I struggle to keep up with them. My boots slip off my feet and I fall behind. Out in the fields, the coyotes call to each other, and I run a little faster. There is an orange glow ahead, and I smell burning wood. It is normally a happy smell, one that reminds me of Christmas, but not now. I don't know what it means, but it is in the direction Daddy is headed. It cannot be good. The flames have mostly died down when I arrive. The church where Mama and Daddy were married 15 years ago was just a pile of coals. I smell kerosene and other fouler smells I cannot place. Daddy? I do not want him to answer. I want to wake up. I see the figure sprawled on the grass beside the smoldering rubble. There is enough light from the remaining flames to reveal him clearly. It is the pastor, and it is his eyes I am holding. I place them on his chest, and I am so afraid I begin to cry. Daddy whispers in my ear. He couldn't see, Robert, but I can show you. My spine turns to ice. His hands are on my shoulders. He turns me away from the dead man and walks me across the grass, still wet with the rain and lashing my legs. I couldn't see either. I couldn't see until I was in the dark and I heard him. I heard the truth, Robert, and then I saw. We are a dozen feet from the sinkhole. It smells of decay. Spittle lands on my cheek as he speaks. But they did not accept the truth. He points to the hole. The others, the men who did not make it out. You will, won't you, Robert? You're my boy, my son. You see the truth. We inch closer to the precipice. The earth is spongy beneath me, and I fear the hole could open at any second. He stands beside me now, stinking, muddy, and not the man I know. He inhales the stench of rod as if it is a bouquet of blue bonnets. His head is tilted to the side, and he nods, smiling. I cannot hear anything, except for the crackle of dying embers. You join me, Robert. It's not that far down. There is a dreamy quality to his voice. His anger and madness is tempered for the moment. What about little Joe and Mama? He blinks a few times. Little Joe. We need them, don't we? He thinks for a few seconds body teetering, and I fear he's going to take us both over the edge. He nods, and I don't know if it's in acknowledgement or something else. I'll fetch him, Daddy. I'll come back with him real quick. He continues to nod. I'll wait for you, son. Down there. He aims a slick finger at the hole, and I don't wait for him to reconsider.
I don't know if my father was in the hole when they began to fill it the next day. I stayed up all night with the rifle aimed at the front door until morning broke. I roused Mama and Little Joe, and we took off for town as soon as it was light enough to see. The sheriff and a few others went out to the ruins of the church and found the pastor there. Eyes stolen by crows that perch in the trees nearby. By noon, half the town's men were out there with shovels and wheelbarrows. I have not seen my father since that night. I dream about him a lot. Sometimes the dreams are from before, but usually not. It's hard to remember he was a good man. Usually, I dream he's in the room whispering in my ear. Sometimes, his words make sense. He spoke about a cavern, and I know there was not enough dirt in those wheelbarrows to fill a cavern. Every town has a place that you're not supposed to go. That one location where even the most adventurous of youth or the hardiest of adult fears to tread. The explanation is often simple. The place is structurally unsound. But in this tale, shared with us by author James Prower, we learn of one location where the instability is just an excuse. So join me as I recount the cautionary fable of a doomed locale passed around by word of mouth and whispered about behind closed doors. When you're passing through Little Creek, pray you don't find yourself under Old Mill Bridge. The new folk built their town up the hill from Little Creek where my family lived for generations since my great-great-great-grandpa settled here. Little Creek's a small town, and we keep to ourselves, which is how the new folk built a city right under our noses without any trouble. They came, they built a tall white church with pointed steeple, brick apartments and roads and houses, and it's never stopped growing. Grandpa always said it's no cause for concern since he signed a paper with the mayor 50 years ago that means they can't build down in Little Creek. The paper didn't mention that the new folk couldn't come through town, so Ma opened a shop out the back of the barn so she could sell food and carvings to passers-by. These days, it's travelers who come through since the people in town have no reason to take the back road. When they do come, though... We keep an eye on them. Last year, some teenagers came down and smashed Uncle Bell's front window with brick and spray-painted Hicks on Ma's shop. We had it cleaned up by morning, but she cried that night. Luckily, we don't see much of them since the incident made the papers and some kids got grounded. Twenty years ago, when the town on a hill became a city on a hill... 
the government built a freeway that cut between the city and Little Creek. At sunset, the light dips behind the big freeway bridge and then comes back for a few minutes, shining a spotlight on our little town. Before he passed, Grandpa said that those golden hour minutes were, quote, Little Creek's time to shine, end quote. When they built the freeway bridge, that's when everyone stopped driving the old mill road, because they didn't need the old mill bridge to cross the river anymore. Old Mill Bridge is one of the last covered bridges in the state, thanks to Grandpa taking care of it for so many years. It's mostly built of wood, except for the black stones holding it up on either end. And ever since the dam got built downstream, it hangs low, just a few inches over the water during the high season. Looks like a big wet wolf, its belly sagging as it holds to both sides of a river that just keeps getting higher. The whole thing fell to moss years ago, but nobody's cleaned it since Grandpa passed away. Moss isn't going to be the first thing that takes it anyway. Back in the day, it was quite a sight, and I know for sure since I've seen the old photos of it. It could hold three horse and buggies side by side at once at one point. Grandpa's own grandpa thought it might bring some more people past his vegetable stands, and maybe we could hold our own against the new town. That's when the first highway came through the new town, and the whole plan went to dust. Just like Little Creek. Years later, the freeway put the last nail in the coffin, so when it came through, the old roads grew through with brass. These days, Old Mill Bridge hangs empty over the creek, a relic from its own time. When the summer comes, the water sits a little lower beneath it, barely flowing, heavy, rotten, filthy. The air stinks down there. It sounds picturesque, but Little Creek folk know the rules. Don't go down by Old Mill Bridge. Don't fish by it, don't swim by it, and even if you're bone parched, don't drink the water by it. If travelers come by and mention the bridge, we tell them the same. Don't go by the bridge. And sure, teens and college kids go down to it on a dare, and some have even crossed it. But the stories did the trick. Nobody goes in the water. It's bad luck to touch that water, they say. Some say it's just a superstition based in a fear of the past. I even believe those lies for some time. All until a fateful August evening, back when I was just 12 years old. That day, my brother Gil and I were fishing just outside town at the corner bend, where the creek joins the river. Gil and I were too young to fish down there, but we went anyway hoping to catch something bigger than what we could get in the lazy creek. Things looked stormy, but we figured we had another half hour or so before we needed to get going. But on my last cast, my line got stuck on something in water. It wasn't stuck too far out, and I didn't want to wreck Uncle Bell's line, so I waded into the water to get it. Three steps in, my boots sank knee-deep into the muck, which was deeper than I'd guessed. I pulled and pulled but couldn't get my legs up, and I kept sinking bit by bit. I started crying, 
but Gil told me it would be okay and ran back to town to get Ma. Well, he'd only been gone five minutes when the rain started. Big dark clouds churned and poured buckets, heavier than any rain I'd ever seen before. The water rose above the mud, over my waist, past my belly button. I don't remember much, just crying and wishing Gil was with me, and telling God that I'd give the church my allowance for a year if he'd just set me free. Didn't hear back from him, though. When the water was at my shoulders and waves started splashing up my nose and into my mouth, the bottom of the river started to loosen. As luck would have it, the same waves that nearly drowned me churned the river bottom and released the mud's grip on my feet. But before I realized that I'd been set free, the storm pulsed again and a surge of water swept me out from the creek bend and down into the river. The storm above flashed and crackled, and the river roared with something even more terrifying to me. I could barely keep my head above water, but I tread the best I knew how. I washed downstream faster than I thought a river could go, and no matter how hard I paddled toward the shore, the more powerful the currents became, pulling me back toward the center. Crashing waves, crashing thunder, howling wind, terror in my heart. The cold ate to my bones, my lungs throbbed from the exertion, and my heart pounded in my ears, speaking to me the knowledge that this could be the end. Thump, 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 thump it went. So when I came around a bend and saw Old Mill Bridge, all family superstitions went out the window. I didn't care for one second about it all. I was so happy to see that old dead bridge that I nearly wept with happiness. It was just after the wet season, so the bridge was two feet or so above the river. Maybe, just maybe, I thought, I could get a grip on it and climb my way out. If I could just latch on, I knew those old boards were spaced just right, that I could stay put if I held on to them tight enough. I braced myself aiming for a solid beam as the water rushed me toward it. I counted under my breath, trying to time it just right. Three, two, now or never. I threw my arms up and grabbed onto an old board, but the board was soaked and slippery with moss, so I grabbed twice, barely got a grip, slipped, and washed under the bridge. I screamed and pushed up out of the water again in one last desperate attempt to save myself. I came up under the bridge, grabbed something warm and loose, and pulled myself up onto a beam. I coughed and gasped for air, but wasn't greeted with clean air, fresh air, the sort of air you expect to breathe when you've barely survived a drowning. No, no, it was thick, fishy, acidic reeked like death. And before I had the guts to open my eyes, Ma's voice rang in my ears, saying the same words she'd said a hundred times growing up. Don't go down by Old Mill Bridge. Well, I grit my teeth and looked up into the face of a dead fish, latched to the same warm, loose moss that I still held in my hand for balance. 
But as I looked closer at the moss, I realized that it wasn't moss at all. It was some sort of dangling black fish meat, sharp with thousands of tiny, tiny white teeth. I gasped and nearly let go, but stopped myself. I needed the grip, and to fall back into the rushing river just feet below would mean my death. I was sure of it. I brushed some of the meat aside and gawked. Dozens of fish were stuck to the toothy meat, thrashing and gasping as the flesh tightened around them. Some were fresh, some had been crushed so hard that their eyes had popped from their skulls. But all of them were still breathing, in that frantic rhythm, the sort of thing that gave me nightmares after visiting a fish market as a boy. I didn't puke, I didn't scream, I didn't breathe. I looked for an exit. There was a raw beam behind me, one that didn't have the meat on it, so I climbed over, pulling my hand from the flesh which I'd been holding. The toothy meat had its grip on my palm, so I pulled hard until it tore off. My skin was blistered raw, and it burned to climb from then on. I tried climbing up the side of the bridge, but couldn't even get close to the edge. Nearly the whole thing was soaked in meat or slippery goo. As I sat on the beam, surrounded by certain death below and uncertain death on the bridge's boards, I noticed that the water was rising, now nearly at high water levels, just a foot below the bridge's lowest beams. I had to get out of there, and fast. If only I could get a little closer to shore, maybe I could jump it. I couldn't go along the top of the beam since they were packed tight with the rank meat, so I decided to climb along the bottom of the beam I was sitting on. With that plan in mind, I wrapped my forearms around the raw beam and shimmied along the bottom of it, my back barely above the surging waves below. I shimmied a few feet, took a moment to catch my breath, then shimmied some more. The wood cut my skin, and the closer to shore I got, the damper the beam got with disgusting-smelling slippery slime. The goo reeked like dead fish and stung my hands. Nearly back at shore, a few waves almost knocked me off the beam, so I climbed up onto it as a last-ditch effort. I hadn't been fast enough, so if the water didn't stop, I'd have to try my luck in the river. Here, the toothy meat was thick, hanging like long, limp arms from every surface, swaying with the storm's wind. I couldn't climb along the bottom of the beam anymore, but maybe I could push through the meat and get close enough to shore to jump. I grit my teeth and pushed past a wall of meat arms, hoping against hope for a miracle. But that's... that's when I saw it. Just past where the bridge's black stone supports met its biggest wooden beams, there was a fish mouth nearly the whole width of the bridge. It sucked at the air like the fish it had caught, through the mouth that didn't have an opening. Just wet flesh, like lips wrapped around a huge tongue, surrounded by hundreds of red suckers. It dripped with blood, pulling the writhing fish toward the maw. Half of the mouth chewed sloppily on a gasping fish the size of a tractor tire, 
blood and bone bursting from beneath its scales down into the water. Tiny, tiny tongues on the lips lapped at the fish, smacking, slurping, hungry, desperate for their taste of the catch of the day. I don't know how long I sat there. I don't know when the storm ended. And I don't know when I fell into the river. But in the night, they fished me out of the dam lake downstream, halfway drowned and pale as a ghost. I woke up the next day, and Ma was so thrilled that she didn't even speak of punishment for fishing where we weren't allowed. She put on a hot pot of coffee and served it to me and Gil with fresh biscuits. I'd never had coffee before, but I'd never tasted something so good. Uncle Bell asked me if I'd washed past the bridge, and I told him yes. He, Ma, and I met eyes, and Ma gave me the biggest hug she'd ever given me. I think they knew what I'd seen. Maybe not Gil, but I have a feeling he found out a few years back. We haven't talked about it since. There's something in it, in the way we dealt with it all. Something about keeping a secret from the new folk. Something we knew that they didn't. Something real and powerful that they couldn't capture, sell, train, kill, or consume like they did to everything else. You know, I've never gone back to the bridge to see if it was real. I know it was, without a shadow of a doubt. It's a shadow over Little Creek, but every moment in the light casts a shadow, I think. When I'm old and my children are grown, I'll sing the same song to my grandchildren that I knew when I was young. Ride to the sea, ride to the air, ride to the mountains, my baby fair. Ride to the valley, ride to the ridge, but don't you go down to the old mill bridge. Don't you go down to the old mill bridge. In our final tale, we join Christopher as he returns home to rural Georgia to aid his ailing grandmother. Granny Mabel appreciates the aid, of course, but she can't help but be disappointed in Christopher's adult disenchantment with their faith. But in this tale, shared with us by author John Vassa, there may be way more conflict going on here than a disagreement between generations. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, Nicole Doolin, and Mick Wingert. So let's settle back and listen to the music, wherever it's coming from. It's enough to inspire us to rise up and march onward, Christian soldiers. A faint tune played in the distance. 
Some twangy piano, perhaps beyond the woods, closer to town or near the church. I shifted on the plastic-wrapped couch. My legs stuck to it for a moment while I reached towards the perspiring glass of water on the coffee table. Grandma Mabel carried on rocking her chair, caught in the midst of a lengthy lecture on how I should be living my life. That's always a favorite pastime in the South. Every few seconds, she would point at the plate of hardened cookies. No wonder you're so skinny. You hardly eat anything. After enough hints, I reluctantly took a cookie and forced a smile on my face. That was the moment I knew there was something different about the place. Do you remember Celo, who lived down the road from here? You two used to play after church when you were kids? Vaguely. Of course I remembered Sheila. Miss Independent who moved to San Fran, declaring that she'd never come back to Georgia, never marry a man, nor would she ever think of stepping foot in a church for the rest of her life. I couldn't pinpoint what struck me as odd, but the home no longer felt like Grandma Mabel's, like it was an exact replica made up just to deceive me. Have you seen what she's doing now? She's singing in one of those big churches in Texas. Oh, I didn't realize that. I did. The traitor. You two were so obsessed with music. My mind was wandering, losing hold of the conversation. Oh yeah, right. I guess. You wanted it so badly. Even more so than your siblings. Everyone knew you had talent if only you knew. If only you knew. Her attention faded as she stared into empty space. No use in asking her to finish that thought. I already knew what she'd say. Oh well, that's how it is then. The skies were darkening outside, and the buzzing cicadas and croaking bullfrogs were getting louder by the minute. The soundtrack of rural living. I wish you'd play for me, like you used to when you were young. Uh, There are videos I've posted. No, no, in person. To hear you live and playing something I'll recognize. Well, find me a piano and, uh, or maybe... Increasingly, Grandma had been fainting outside over the past two months. Church was the only place she could go to without any incident. Doctor's orders. Will you play a hymn for me, Cece? Choked for words, I was thankfully interrupted by the appearance of two older women opening the screen door at the porch. We both turned our attention to them. They were dressed from head to toe, wearing their Sunday's best, despite the sweltering heat and humidity. 
Layers upon layers were covering these old pruny women in dark purples and bright pinks. Mabel, you coming or not? Oh, yes. Grandma Mabel was dressed similarly. It must be that time again. Don't forget your pill before you go. Otherwise, you might get lightheaded out there. She looked around absentmindedly for a second, then spotted her pillbox on the coffee table. We all watched her like hawks. Slowly, she picked out her evening meds and tried to laugh at the situation. Everyone stared at the glass of water. She finally grabbed the water and downed her pill. A coldness passed through me. Even in the blistering heat, my anxiety prickled and my throat began to dry up. Is this little Christopher? My, has he grown into a fine-looking young man. I took another sip of water, but it didn't alleviate my symptoms. Yes, he's here to visit for the next few days. Drove all the way down from Memphis to see me. It was as if there was a lump in my throat. I wanted to say something, but felt embarrassed around these women. Me, a grown man, acting like a child. Doesn't he want to join us? We'd love to hear him play some hymns. My face flushed at her words. The lump thickened to a doe. Oh, not tonight. He's tired from all that driving. Ain't that right, Cece? Unable to speak, I simply nodded. Both women sneered as they measured me up and down. It's safe to assume that everyone in town pegged me as a heathen. Perhaps my eight-year absence was clue enough without the help of gossip. Fine, then. Let's go before they start. They left, a buzz and chatter, shouting as if their hearing aids were broken. Then, within a few minutes, the murmuring cicadas and the stirring pipe organ masked their loud voices. I sighed at the empty house. My echo, too, had faded, as if another set of ears had heard my exhale and soaked in my disturbance. Feeling unsettled, I rose to my feet and examined an old family portrait hanging on the wall. My grandmother had more flesh on her bones in the picture. Her eyes were sharp and her hair sprung full of life. A creaky piano tune peppered the air. What's with this place? Am I getting old? Another patter seeped through the walls, as if it was coming from inside the house. Easing the family portrait back into place, I moved myself toward the staircase. No piano notes floated towards me. As I stepped back, a picture frame clattered from the wall onto the ground, giving me a nasty scare. I held my thudding chest, then bent down to pick up the fallen frame. I turned it over and found myself locking sights with a picture of Jesus. 
His face was covered in blood, and his sad eyes were filled with sorrow. Too lifelike for my taste. I took Jesus back to the wall, and in a moment's impulse, flipped him around so his sad face was against the wall. The last thing I needed was more judgmental glances over the next few days. Snapping from my reverie, I wandered through the living area, stopping at Grandma's desk in the corner where I spotted her diary sitting on the table. Out of curiosity, I flipped it open and looked inside. A date was written at the top corner of the page, and below it was a prayer. I pray that you will bring all the lost children back to you, Lord, that we may be good and faithful servants to you, to carry out Pastor Jean's plans, drawing life back into your temple and reclaiming our youth for your glory. Then I heard a slight chattering coming from the wall. It was the type of tremor one might experience during a minor earthquake. But in the outskirts of Atlanta? I raised my eyebrows as I scanned the room, inch by inch, catching sight of a moving frame in my peripheral vision. As I honed in on the trembling frame, I saw no more movement. The ceiling fan swayed above me as it always does. The light fixture was jittering about, casting a wobbly glow into the living area and playing tricks on my mind and vision. I shut the notebook a little too quickly, and a sheet of paper slipped halfway out. There was an unusual drawing on the sheet. It was colored in black charcoal and smeared across the entire paper. The quick glance over my shoulder, I made sure no one was watching, then pried open the book to have a better look at the sketch. It was a rudimentary drawing. In the center of the page was a misshapen circle with what looked like spikes surrounding it. Turning it on its side gave me no better perspective or answers. Feeling confused, and even less curious now, I started to put the paper away when I caught sight of the words written in the bottom corner Pastor Jean's Plan 1.2, Solomon's Covenant and the Virgin Birth. I snorted to myself and finally put the paper away, thinking that Grandma could use some art lessons to improve her holy depictions. A loud clatter rang out behind me. My heart slowed for a moment. As I turned around, I saw that a picture frame had fallen to the ground. Same sad eyes and bloody face. Jesus Christ, what's your deal tonight, eh? I walked over and picked up the frame, hanging it on its nail once more. Before I turned away, I gave it a good tug to make sure that it was hooked on properly this time. That's when I heard a melody whispering from the hallway upstairs. This time, it was crisp enough for me to identify the tune. Onward, Christian Soldiers. The lyrics filled in automatically inside my head. Pushing along the wooden steps, I went to the second floor and peered down the hall. I couldn't make out where the tune was resonating from. I started opening doors along the way 
searching out this mystery piano or, or likely, radio. The first room was full of toys we had when we were children. Some were carved by hand, and others were cheap plastic figures that could be bought at any major store. The second door opened into my grandfather's study. I paused. I held a silent reverence for the space. It was eerie the way everything had been left untouched, down to the finest details. His diary remained open with his pen lying in its crease, as if he were simply taking a moment's break. I moved inside and turned on the light. I'd never seen it for myself. I'd only heard about it from my folks. But the stories were true. I crept up to the diary and read the last words he'd ever written. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who resides in man's hearts, and when earthly flesh has rotted and souls have left, it is he, Jesus Christ, who... According to my mother, Papa Floyd had enough time to set his pen down and inch his seat back, holding his left arm as his heart failed him and his knees buckled his body to the ground. The song rang more clearly, chiming from somewhere within the house. I scurried out of the room, guided by the hypnotic melody. Onward, Christian soldiers beckoned me from the end of the hall. Why did I care? Fear asked me to leave, but I was mesmerized, like a trance. There was a deep longing to know where this piano sound was coming from. A slam echoed downstairs. My mind was too preoccupied to give it much thought. Jesus must have fallen again. I went to the door at the end of the hall slowly turning the knob and opening it. The sound died. Nothing played in the space. My fingers fumbled on the wall for the switch, finally clicking on the lights. Christian memorabilia crowded every inch of the place. A statue of Jesus stood in the corner with his hands extended, and several paintings and printed pictures of Jesus covered the walls. There were plenty of Bibles resting on a dresser, bookended by a set of praying hands and accompanied by a toy soldier. I turned round in circles, overwhelmed by the trinkets, getting dizzy from all the holy eyes boring into me. Onward, Christian soldiers blared from the army figure marching on top of the dresser, a Bible in his hand and a cross slung over his shoulder. As I moved away from the toy, my hip nicked the edge of a piano. I pivoted and looked down at the instrument, perplexed. Grandma had never owned a piano before. The soldier ran out of juice and stood still on the dresser. I looked around as if I might see someone in the room and have to ask their permission to test the piano. Without any affirmation, I hit the C-sharp key and listened to it twang. 
A Jesus figurine nailed to a wooden cross stared at me from on top of the instrument. Like that? Then I sat down on the stool and readied my hands on the yellowed ivory. The tapping of my foot jogged my mind and set into motion an unfinished project I'd put on hold during this visit. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And my fingers started gliding. The song was inspired by a dissolved relationship. A possible engagement down the tubes after I cast doubt on her face. Apparently you're not supposed to question these things. Do as instructed. Smash your feelings into the base of your spine and get on with your duties. Hypocrisy abounds. Double standards behind the pulpit. But you can't question the Lord's appointed. Everything you think or say is secondary to what an old book of text tells you to believe. A thought tapped me on the shoulder, gently asking for a second of my time as I drained my emotions into the peace. I kept thinking of her. How much I changed after graduation to accommodate her supposed needs. My mind was unsettled like a hornet's nest, causing me some pain in my gut and grief in my headspace. I wanted to bang my fists into the stupid piano and crush each of the keys into a fine dust. I couldn't stand sitting there anymore. It felt as if I'd bled my entire life before a large audience. But there was no applause and no smiles, only piercing gazes from unfeeling strangers. Right then I realized what I'd been doing. Where the tune of my latest composition should have flowed, instead came out onward Christian soldiers. My hands swiped away from the keys. Cold sweat beaded from my forehead. The stuffy evening had vacated the room, allowing an unnatural and icy draft to wrap about my waxen skin. The messianic eyes stared at me from the walls and from the tiny figurines. My hands were trembling in a fit of exasperation. I slid my legs out from the piano bench and stood upright. My head ached with a dull throb. I scowled at the ache when I heard shouts coming from downstairs. Leaving the room, I raced down the stairs, peering around the bend, hoping for a first glance. That what, exactly? I swallowed my breath, then heard Grandma's voice and her two church friends entering the living room. The two ladies ushered Grandma through the door, all the while fussing about her health. Grandma Mabel kept swatting at them, trying to make them take their hands off her. What's the matter? Grammy, you all right? I'm fine. She wiggled out of their grasps. Will everyone calm down? What happened? She fainted during the sermon. Purple fixed the top button on her jacket while glaring at Grandma Mabel. Her head knocked onto my shoulder in the middle of Pastor Jean's talk. Passed right out. 
Thank goodness no one was standing. It's too hot. They need to install more fans or get a new air conditioner. Pink fanned a gloved hand at her plump, sweaty face. No one else passed out. And since when do we need more fans? You voted against the proposal at last month's meeting. Grandma Mabel rolled her eyes as they helped her sit in her chair. Oh, leave me alone. I can do it myself. She fell into her seat and shooed their hands away. Purple dabbed her brow with a silk square. You should see the doctor. He's probably available at home anyhow. Oh, I don't need to see a doctor. Will you both give me some room to breathe? I'll keep an eye on her. It's pretty hot tonight. See? Both ladies stuck up their noses and accepted this compromise. Don't let her fool you. If she starts getting pale, then you give the hospital a call. Okay? I will. At that, they took a glance at the house, then left, hoping to make the tail end of the sermon. Grandma was breathing heavily, trying to fan herself free from the humidity. I can drive you to the emergency room. No, absolutely not. You get me some water. That's all I need. I'm fine. Grandma? Listen. She pointed a finger at me. Let me tell you. As you get older, there are two types of fines. There's, I'm fine, and then there's, I'm fine. You know the difference? I crossed my arms. The first is what I'm saying to you now, that indeed I'm fine. She reached for her leftover glass of water and took a sip. You say it when you know everything's all right. It's just part of growing old, which is annoying, but nothing to get fussy over. And the second? She tipped back more water, set it on the table, and then looked at me flatly. The second one is what people say when they're too afraid to admit that everything, indeed, is not all right. Understand? I snorted out my nostrils, shaking my head. Hard-headed as always. I'm fine, no matter how old I am. After monitoring her for a while, I started to trust her judgment and relaxed a little. She rocked in her chair, saying she was fine under her breath every so often. Then, out of nowhere, she locked eyes with me, a thought resting on the tip of her tongue. When are you going to play for me? You know I'd like that. I thought about that piano upstairs. Tomorrow. 
I'll play for you tomorrow. A smile came across her thin lips. That's nice. I can't wait. I wanted to ask her where the piano came from, but instead I let the question slide for another time. We sat in silence a while longer. The insects were back at their nocturnal musings, and the bullfrogs wouldn't let up on croaking for mates. I twiddled my fingers, thinking of the old days. For a second, I thought of reminding Grandma about the time we broke Hunter's collarbone playing tag. But when I looked up and saw how taut her face was, I stopped. You know, you'll be famous one day. Soon enough, you'll be playing for the Lord again. And everyone across this nation will know your name. I didn't know what to say in return. How could I break this old lady's heart in her twilight years by saying I no longer believed? After you play for me, you'll be famous, Cece. Then I'll be able to watch you every day on TV. Then she closed her eyelids, drifting into sleep. I got up from the sofa quietly so as not to wake her and moved to the steps. As I neared the light switch, I glanced over at the picture frame of Jesus hanging on the wall. He stared at me in the reflecting moonlight, blood on his face and sorrow in his eyes. I cut off the lights and wondered to myself whether I'd put Jesus facing the wall or not earlier. Oh well. Restless dreams entered and fled into nothingness throughout the night. Sheila cropped in and out of these fleeting visions, each time unable to speak to me, but trying to tell me something important. Then she vanished. And in her place were giant frogs lining the edge of a pond, their cold amphibian gazes searching for moving prey. I swam in the brown murky waters lapping about, casting glances at the bullfrogs, never voicing my fear that they may catch sight of me. From the shore, I saw a man in a white robe staring at me. He stood motionless, arms behind his back, amongst the giant blades of grass. Growing self-conscious, I started to paddle myself to the opposite end of the pond, a black frog emerged to the surface, its giant yellow eyes peering out of the water, blocking my path. As it opened its mouth, I caught a glimpse of one lone tooth in its maw, sharp and fanged like a serpent's. I backstroked, gradually moving myself away from the frog when my back hit into a solid barrier. Craning my neck, I saw behind me a Jesus standing on the water, his arm extended. Instinctively, I reached out toward his hand, then felt uneasy and retracted my acceptance. 
his face contorted. A scowl started to form for a moment before a sly grin overtook it. Looking at his hand again, I saw it was full of gold. Take my hand, child. They're yours to keep. I shook my head, a quiver. You want these talents, don't you? Not from you. Afraid, are you? From the world and from yourself? There are no shortcuts in life. This isn't how it's done. Take them. Go on, child. His hand kept wagging before my face. But the longer I resisted, the faker those gold coins appeared. I waited a stroke away. You want to be nothing, then? To have that day of judgment pass over you, or I will say, depart from me, I never knew you? My arms took me another stroke aside. You have wasted your life. I'm offering you an exchange. Play for me. Be my Christian soldier and play. And all of this will be yours. You're a big fake. No one else has to know that. He set his index finger on his lips, then grinned as his eyes faded out from his visage and his skin turned into black leather. Sucked out from the dream, I awoke to a throbbing headache and the sight of my door closing shut. The fragments of the dream were still dissolving from my head as I fumbled to the ground. I got on my hands and knees and crawled to the door. A scuttling sound emanated from outside, within the hall. Grasping at the knob, my hands slipped twice until they finally latched on, and I was able to open the door. My strengths began to return, enough for me to lift myself along the wall. As I gathered to my feet, I heard something scraping in the hallway, moving further from me. Stumbling along, I went to the stairs, following after the noise, trying to identify the possible vermin. Before I continued down the steps, I paused, feeling awed. I held my arm and scanned the darkness for a moment. Then it clicked. The cicadas, bullfrogs, and crickets were dead silent outside. I heard a rattling pop in the kitchen. I hurried down the steps and saw Grandma asleep, her feet dangling over the chair, bits of grass on her toes. Everything seemed peaceful enough. Perhaps I was the only one stirring in the ambiance of rural living. Using the back of my hand, I wiped the cold, damp sweat from my forehead. I lingered a second longer on the stairs and dabbed my forehead once more, this time feeling not sweat, but a sticky substance. Examining my fingers, I saw them glistening in the moonlight, 
like that of lines left behind by snails. Grace? I remained motionless, absolutely silent. Is that you, Christopher? Yes. Are you all right? I thought I heard something. Did you have a nightmare? Do you need a glass of milk? No. Uh, no, Grandma. Do you want me to pray with you, then? Never mind. I'm fine. I'm just not used to this house, is all. Remember, the Lord is always watching over you, dear. His blood will protect you if you believe in him. Right, of course. You let me know if you want something to drink. No, thanks. I'm going back to sleep. Okay. Sweet dreams. Climbing the steps, I heard the cicadas resuming their chants outside. By the time I reached the top, the crickets and bullfrogs began singing as well. Back in my room, I lay on the bed, tossing about, thinking of Sheila, flying into the past. The last time we spoke at university, how we both made a pact never to return to our old religion. I delved deeper, remembering how firm she was about her newfound convictions, saying to me time and again that one day she'd be a famous singer, but never under the banner of a church. Did she forget what we saw that last night at our summer camp? Perhaps she played it off as a childish vision, a silly notion fabricated by our imaginations. We should have been asleep that night instead of peeping into the woods. My skin shivered into goose pimples, those piercing eyes watching me from the woods as the church elders dragged a captive woman into their tight-knit huddle. Sheila grabbed my hand tightly and said we should leave. How could she forget so easily? Those eyes we saw beyond the trees. What kind of baptism were they performing at midnight? Sighing, I tossed on the bed, punching my pillow and grunting to myself. Adult life changes people makes them jaded and breaks them enough to forget their former promises. The traitor. Dreams or hallucinations? Neither drew a distinct line between the other over the next three hours. Bullfrogs croaked loudly while deep yellow eyes tracked my movements. Thunder bellowed outside. Jesus held his hands out to me, pleading for me to take the talents. Exchange, my child. You must make the exchange. Lightning snapped as rain nicked at the windows, 
Take my hand, child. Take it. A chiming melody sang throughout the house. Grabbing my temples, I thrashed about, wanting this insanity to end. I climbed out of bed, looking down the hall, seeing nothing and hearing nothing. Lightning pulsed a crack in the door at the end of the hall. I stalked to the room, then halted, considering bursting in and smashing every religious trinket inside. Licking my lips, I set my ear against the door, hearing no sounds. I punched the door in an angry fit and then stormed back into my room. Closing my eyes was futile. No sleep would come. Only more images of Christ trying to exchange his talents for a place in my heart. Perhaps an hour passed, or even less, where I must have been in the transitory state between sleep and wakefulness because I fell out of my bed when the sound of the piano played at full volume. The pianist holding back no hammered key or softening any blows. I screamed as I clenched my fists and hit them on the floor. Then I shot up and kicked out at the door, shouldering into the room at the end of the hall. A small black figure sat at the piano stool, playing its jarring rendition of onward Christian soldiers. It stopped as I arrived, turned its little head my way, staring at me behind two glassy black eyes. The creature's skin seemed damp. It was glistening like a slug, its body grub-like with plenty of fatty folds, two stick arms and squat legs poking from its figure. It's you. You're the glowing eyes both Sheila and I saw that night. A guttural utterance choked from its mouth, as if the thing was trying to speak to me. I took a step back, hitting into a barrier behind me. Twisting around, I saw Grandma Mabel in the dark, holding a fire iron and pushing me into the room. You're supposed to be asleep, Christopher. You naughty boy. Grandma? I see you found the piano room. I made this for you. Do you know that? I bought all of these things for you. Pastor Jean helped me pick them out. I looked back at the piano, finding the creature missing. You know it pains me so much to watch you suffer. Suffering to make a living in the secular world. Only you turn your sights to the Lord. You already know how I feel, don't you? She smirked. Do you know what happened to Sheila and me when we were young? What they tried to do to us during that summer camp in the woods? Oh, grow up, child. Stop blaming God for your problems. My mouth was agape, shocked at hearing these words uttered from Grandma Mabel's lips. Seeing as we're both awake now, 
How about a song, Cece? Let Grammy hear you play one of her favorite hymns. Grandma, what's going on? What are you talking about? And you recognize him? I scan the room, finding an audience of eyes. Christ on the wall, Christ the statue in the corner. I rubbed my face and dabbed the cold sweat from my brow. I want to hear you play the Lord's music, not any of your secular nonsense. Grandma, you need help. Help? What help would I need? The Lord watches out for his sheep. If one goes astray, he graciously herds them back. Don't you know that's what he's done for me? When your grandpa passed, he found me during my darkest hours and saved my soul from sin. I gave him life, and he gave me his promise. She stepped closer, pushing me toward the piano. My legs hit the stool and I dropped into the seat. I've watched your parents stray, your brother and sister going through the motions, but nothing more. And now you, trying to play the devil's chorus for the rest of those hell-bound souls. That's not fair. Now play, Cece. I want you to play me a hymn. A gnawing sound filled the room. I shook my head. No, I won't do it. Then I turned back and saw my grandmother no longer held the iron, but the grub in her arms, feeding it from a bleeding hole on her breast. You see, he came to me. He wanted to live inside my heart. But I told him I was too old, that my time would be ending soon, and he'd perish along with the rest of this body of mine. The picture frames trembled on the walls, each one of them quivering, making slight clatters as they jiggled. So I made a deal with him. You bless my grandson. Give him the talent he deserves, and I will offer him to you. A lamb for the holy sacrifice. Same as Isaac in the Bible. Grandma, whatever you think this is, it's wrong. You have to trust me. This thing isn't Christ. And it isn't going to save anyone's soul. How can it be wrong when the rest of our congregation have done it? Pastor Gene knows more tricks than you give him credit for. Just look at Sheila. Look at what she's become after accepting this Jesus into her heart. Sliding across the floor, the Jesus statue rammed into me, its arms holding onto my shoulder and pinning me against the piano. 
Now, are you going to play for us or not? Uh, Grandma, please. No, Cece, I can't watch you. I can't watch my favorite grandchild fall into sin. To lose his way. Forget the promises he made as a child. You remember what you told me. The commitment you made before God and everyone. I was a child then. Her head twitched, and then she unlatched the slimy creature from her breast. Blood trickled down onto her nightgown. You're making a mistake, Grandma. Please. She held up the critter. Its beady eyes were watching me as its gaping hole of a mouth puckered open and shut. I wrestled in the statue's grasp, unable to move. Stepping nearer, the grub puckered its mouth, erupting a single fanged tooth from its slimy gums. Come back to the Lord. Remember who you are. The creature was drawing closer to me, its body reaching for my head. Okay, okay, I'll play for you. Can I do that first? Stuck in a trance, her eyes were glazed over until she nodded, then smiled. Oh, I'd like that. I'd like that very much, Cece. The creature writhed in her arms snarling and chortling a raspy grunt. It lashed around as if in pain, squirming to and fro like a worm in the throes of imminent death. Jesus's cold statue hands loosened from my shoulders, enough for me to knock it to the floor, splitting a giant fissure from its crown down to his sandaled toe. I knew this would be my only chance. There could be no mistakes in my actions, no hesitations. Grandma lost grip of the creature. It fell to the floor as she bellowed an awful howl. Racing for my position, I scooped up the creature, causing my grandma even more pain, and ran down the hall. Come back! Bring him here! Hearing her behind me, I knew I could easily outrun her. The creature flailed around in my grip. Its slippery body almost wormed out of my hands as I tripped down the stairs. Grandma wasn't following me anymore. Not caring to verify this, I got to my feet and tried to get out the door, only to find it locked. Turning about, I saw the frames of Jesus on the wall, blood dripping from them as they wailed in agony at his crucifixion. Their voices pierced into my skull and pinched inside my bones. The critter wagged its thick body at me, trying to move its tooth toward my skin and have a taste of my flesh. Without much thought, acting through pure adrenaline and panic, I kicked my heels through the window and stuck myself outside. Thunder clapped overhead as drenching sheets of rain poured off the sheltered porch. Lights flashed inside the house. 
Grandma's shadow stretched downward across the staircase. Plunging out from the porch and into the rain, I tightened my grasp on the grub, not concerned that I might squash it in my hands or drain its gelatinous innards out of its skin. Racing through the woods, I followed the streaks of lightning, pushing deeper and hearing the croaks of bullfrogs growing louder. I emerged from the trees into an oasis patch where tall fountain grass grew around a dark and murky pond. A blip of lightning cracked through the skies, blinding me for a second, then showing me my surroundings clearly in the waning light. The pond was unsettled by the rain, but my heart was even more disturbed when I saw them. A circle of bullfrogs staked around the pond, each held by sharp wooden pikes rammed through their guts and protruding out their wide mouths. Shock held me still for a moment too long, giving the grub a chance to slip from my hands. I quickly reached down, searching for the critter. I felt its thick tail, but failed to grab hold of it. Then a light shone in my face. Grandma was wearing an old headlamp and moving it up and down my body. She stepped high over a log and came towards the pond. The light illuminated a frog near me. Its body was pierced by the crudely pointed stake made from a rough cut of timber. A mechanical click of a shotgun's pump sounded. Where is he? Where have you put that virgin child? Out of instinct, I raised my hands into the air. I recall a young boy crying to me during church when he heard how Judas betrayed Christ. I recall a tender-hearted child who wept when he heard how Pilate gave the order to crucify Jesus on hillsides of Calvary. I swallowed hard, seeing the grass parting near the water. You've forgotten him, child. Well, he's never forgotten you. Diving toward the part in the grass, I lunged for the critter, getting my hands around its fat body. An explosion fired behind, my grandmother shouting as birdshot peppered the winds. Tiny singes burrowed into my shoulder and back. The grub swung around on instinct, clamping its parted opening over the back of my hand and sinking that long tooth into my flesh. I tried to rip the leech away. Its stick arms held to my wrists as it milked poison into my blood. Rolling on the ground, I smacked at its body and threw my fists at it, hoping to burst the fiend into mush. My body grew weaker. I started to feel lightheaded. I knew the end was nearing. If I didn't take action and force it off me quickly, this would be my last memory. Punching a firm blow, I felt my knuckles squash the thing. Its body must have drained all fluids as it shrieked and unlatched from my skin. Taking it up in my other hand, I tossed the thing into the pond, 
and popped myself into a sitting position. The lights became more powerful behind me. They shone along the surface of the pond. Then I saw the creature sink beneath the water, tiny stick arms clawing, clawing, but failing to bring its body up for air. As I looked over my shoulder, I saw Grandma letting the shotgun fall from her hands, and her body tumbled over onto the ground. I carried her into the house and called the doctor. She mumbled with her eyes shut for over 15 minutes. Then I spotted the blue and red lights flashing in the distance, racing through the rain. Grandma opened her eyes and held my arm. Cece, is that you? I'm here, Grammy. Why are you in Memphis? A tear escaped my eye. Never mind it. I'll tell you later. The emergency van screeched to a halt outside, and two EMTs ran to the front door. I let out a sigh and let my body relax. Days later, we gathered in the piano room with her friends from the church who joined us. Needless to say, Pastor Jean wasn't invited. Everyone got cozy, squeezed shoulder to shoulder, so Mabel could show off her grandson's talent. Go on, Christopher. Play any song you'd like. I smiled at her. One of my own compositions? A broad smile crossed her face. Oh, nothing would make me prouder. My hands hovered over the keys, ready to tap out my original composition. I put some weight over my hands. They didn't seem anxious to play. I laughed, causing the room to chuckle as well. Don't be nervous. Sure, of course. An uncomfortable motion squirmed in my intestines. A sudden movement of gas, perhaps? All these nerves. So many eyes watching me. But then I found my hands in another position. And without any conscious thought, I began playing Onward Christian Soldiers. Even though I didn't look around, for some reason I could feel the congregation smiling amongst themselves. As the fires wane 
and embers glow. Our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.